Welcome to the Government Huddle with Brian Chittister, a new podcast from Government Marketing University. My entire career has been dedicated to marketing in the government space. And in the beginning, I never cared about the why. I was completely focused on the how. It was all about the tactics, the analytics, the ROI, rinse and repeat. Then I decided I wanted to understand these programs and technologies the same way our customers do. It opened up a whole new world for me. And that is what this show is about, aligning the why with the how, taking a deep dive on current trends, making bold, educated predictions about the market, learning from expert guests, and discovering innovative concepts on how to respond to all of this. So join us as we talk about all things government marketers need to know about today, tomorrow, and beyond. Come on, let's huddle up. What a difference a few months can make. All right, welcome back, guys. This is the Government Huddle Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And the world that we as marketers knew and could strategize for has been completely flipped on its head. We've all experienced a lot of surprises since the beginning of the year. But one good surprise, if you want to call it that, that's been brought on by this pandemic is the acceleration of some digital transformation programs in government. And it's given CIOs and their teams a platform to showcase the true cost of delaying some of these programs has caused within the government. Um, one great example is at the state government level, uh, there have been crashed unemployment systems as they've been inundated with applications. Uh, but all that's changing, things are accelerating. And today joining us to discuss this is Jeremy Paul from Quadient, where he's the director of enterprise solutions. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. So to kick us off, why don't you tell our listeners what they might not know about Quadient, who they are, what are they doing, and how they are supporting public sector right now? I appreciate the opportunity to do that, and uh, I know the rest of the company does as well. So Quadient is a company that believes that connections matter. At the core of any business uh, or government agency out there, they're really striving to create a great experience for their constituency. See? And... In doing so, they have to know the touch points that are going to be taking place. And we understand that at the core of that, there's four real buckets for us that we we can help address. And we have our traditional mail business uh, that we were formerly known as company as Neopost and have recently rebranded to Quadient. And then we also put a lot of focus on business process automation because it's really the ability for companies to consistently communicate at the right moment and right time to meet their audience. And if, you, if you're going to do that well, you've, you've got to make sure your internal processes are really working uh, seamlessly. We also have a customer experience management tools that allow you to measure each engagement with those customers, know the timing of them, and when their customers uh, are at the best point to touch base with. And then finally, we, we've uh, gone very big into the parcel lockers, and that's a, an up-and-coming business space that really helps with the way the world works today and logistics and how everything is ordered online and delivered directly to people. I'm glad you touched on automation because I want to I want to head that way. And coming out of this pandemic, governments are going to be really looking at costs, especially at more localized levels, because with revenues not coming in right now, 
it's really building up a deficit. And I say all that because companies are going to have to not only show value quickly to the government, um, but now really showcase full enterprise value. And automation is one area where that is possible. So what are you seeing from governments around automation adoption and where do you see it going? It's an interesting question because we were in the past couple of years, uh, we've really observed a move in government agencies to automation. And uh, for the first time ever, you could talk to a lot of government agencies for years and it just wasn't something they were interested in adopting. And some of that's just brought on by a different generation slowly taking over, running these different government agencies. But our belief is COVID is going to really open their eyes to how important automation can be for their business. Just uh, look at the fact that we all went home to work for the past 60 days. Over three quarters of the country is still working from home and only a little bit opened up. And automation really makes work something that you do, not somewhere you go. And, and that's at the very core of, of what we're trying to do for businesses. Allow their employees to get the job done that they need to do. The things that are repetitive, that don't need to be handled by a human, put the automation in place to handle. That way you have your key employees, your key team members, uh, handling the parts of the business that take a human to make the decision, a human to uh, make the transaction or execute on the job and allow the, their time to focus just on the important parts, not get caught up in the busy work. So you brought up, you brought up a, basically a culture aspect of it and talking about generational. Uh, I'm interested to, to see your take on how you see that playing out across the enterprise. I, I've had these conversations with some coworkers and I think even beyond just the idea of technology adoption, we're seeing generations um, that might have gone to private sector coming to the public sector. And this is actually um, becoming a recruiting tool too, having the type of technologies that they need in place to be able to support um, the next generation uh, workforce within government. Um, do, you, do you think automation can play a part in kind of talent acquisition in that regard too? It, it's appearing to play a huge role. I, I had a chance about six months ago uh, to sit down with the director of HR for the Department of Community Affairs here in Georgia. And uh, it was a fascinating conversation just because the way that uh, the government sector has to attract talent is completely different from the uh, public sector. They, they oftentimes don't have the competing salaries, but they have things, other things they can offer, like the fact that they, they try and get everyone to be able to go home. They work an eight to five uh, hour a day job and they don't have to do a lot of overtime or work on the weekends. But they also can put in tools that bring their job into the 21st century, as opposed to still having them just process a lot of documents and stamp and, and push the paper down the road. Now they're showing them, look, we are competing with the public sector in our workspace. Uh, we're looking at ways to help solve the problems better. And uh, you know, a lot of government employees that deal directly with the public sometimes get a bad rap. But the truth is, when you sit down and talk to any of those employees at, at in their heart, they really want to help people. That's what drew them to that job. That that's why they took chose that lifestyle for their work environment. And it frustrates them when they get caught up in bureaucracy when they know the right decision to make. And it's just because a, a document was designed 30 years ago and that's the one they have to use. It's forcing them down a bad path and not allowing them to connect to the other parts of the organization and quickly move people through the system and get them the help that they need. Yeah, you probably saw some of the articles going around the internet around the six-year-old coding language that was the bedrock for the unemployment insurance websites that were going down. And I'm sure there were a lot of uh, millennials and, and Generation Z that were shaking their heads going, I can't believe this is
can happen. So as you know, it's an election year. One trend I've been paying attention to is the reevaluation re of what can and can't be digital. And with voting being primarily in person right now, and we're in the state that we're in, um, I know there's digital voting capabilities out there uh, in a limited capacity, but how feasible do you think it would be to be able to vote virtually by November? From a technical standpoint, probably pretty feasible to be voting virtually by November. However, from a political standpoint, there's there's absolutely no chance. And, and I'll, I'll let you know that parts of our, our uh, society or part of the American population is already voting virtually. Uh, the UACABA, the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens that uh, apply and traditionally did vote by mail, and they're still requesting their absentee ballots the same way. About 80% of them is what I'm being told vote digitally today where they're not actually even dealing with a mail ballot to come to them wherever they may be deployed or living uh, when it's election time. However, here in the States, the civilian population in our vote is a long, long ways away from voting virtually unless there's a big change in the political atmosphere. Uh, as, as you know, dealing with the government, that's one thing that does not move fast. Uh, the party in power does not like to see change. Uh, and that's simply just because the, the old adage is, if, if it got you here, don't change it, because that'll make you not be here any longer. So they really, uh, they'll, they'll fight against it. And that goes for, for either side of the political aisle. The one in power will always want to keep that, the, the ball bouncing in the way it is today. Uh, however, beyond the virtual voting, you know, with COVID-19, it's really flipped the world on end. Uh, a lot of people see an election cycle or, or an election as what occurs on the general election day for this year. It's November 3rd. And, and for a good majority of those folks, they only consider the presidential election the only time that you really vote in the country. Whereas uh, if, you're in the, if you're in the business and you deal a lot with the different uh, election administration boards, whether it's supervisor election or board of election in, in your particular neck of the woods, you, you learn very quickly that to the people who are pulling off elections, it's a huge monumental task they really see an election as a two-year cycle and they've got a year to ramp up for the year that holds all the elections and in a presidential election year there's three big elections that take place across the country from your presidential preference primaries that happen in the early spring across the country and then you've got your primary races that go in the summertime and that all stages us for the big general election that'll be taking place in november uh, when COVID hit it through a monkey wrench in their plans and i've had the opportunity i don't know probably to talk to 150 different boards of election now across the country and uh their their 15 months of planning went up in smoke almost overnight where they're now scrambling uh to realign everything they had planned for for two years and figure out how they're going to pull off election it's amazing how personal uh the the people in the election office take it they, they really want every vote every person who's eligible to vote to have the opportunity to vote and to get to cast a vote and uh that that's what drives them on a daily basis and they're they're struggled because now they're stuck between this uh the political battle that's going on today of what's the best way to run an election and uh right now it's got a lot of face time for vote by mail and whether or not it's secure or not, we, we've got some leaders that really think it's not secure, but I, I can assure you it is the most secure way to vote that we have uh, today going on for the civilian vote. And um, now they've got to determine whether or not they can hold the election that way or parts of the election. And they're, they're, they're 
absolutely challenged with all kinds of different things. Like the majority of the uh, temporary workers that a board of elections brings on to help run polling places and count votes and bring the ballots inbound and outbound. Well, that's uh, the part of our populations that's at the most critical level. It's our senior citizens that generally take on those roles uh, for the country. And they are just in a position where they can't go out and afford to be part of a group in a small area conducting an election. And so they've backed away. Many of them were signed up and started last December to learn about this year. So they were ready to hold all these different elections that occur during the year. And they, they've just backed off. So uh, those who are running elections are, are faced with a shortage of personnel. Uh, they also oftentimes have a, a limited amount of space to conduct their business in that's been afforded to them by, by the local government. And uh, that doesn't play well in a society where, where typically they've thrown manpower and they've thrown uh, uh, energy at pulling off an election and now they've got to they got to do it in a small space they need automation tools to to run it and they got to be able to do it with less people so you you kind of stole my uh, my next question there yeah kind of teased it a little bit but um it's obvious you're you're really knowledgeable in this space and that's great because we need companies like you um to help facilitate some of these uh major political type of milestones in our, within our country. Um, so with that begs the question, how's Quadient helping um, in that? I mean, like you said, it's a two year cycle that kind of went up in smoke. Um, and it sounds like you guys have um, with what they're doing. How's, how's Quadient lined up to be able to help um, facilitate the uh, November election and, and more? Yeah, so for uh, 10, 12 years, we've really been involved in vote by mail in some key states uh, that have been early adopters of the practice. And, and, and in most of those cases, we're, our main concerns were in helping build the ballot packets to get mailed out and apply tracking to them and leverage the best of service from the post office. And also in helping them uh, get, the, get the return envelopes and stuff open when they come back in. But with the way that the world's changed and the, the stress it's caused on the voter registrars. We've extended those services to help uh, facilitate the inbound and outbound of the registration that has to take place, the request for your vote by mail ballot to be mailed to you. And, uh, and then when you take the scale that's going to come into building those ballot packets, uh, a lot of uh, Board of Election offices are three, eight, ten people. And they're going to go from sending out a couple hundred to maybe 10,000 vote by mail ballots to where they'll, they'll be mailing out 25, 50, 100,000, 200,000 ballots and upwards of where I know one county in the U.S. went from doing 40,000 vote by mail ballots in the last election to this time they'll mail out 1.5 uh, ballots. It, it, when you talk about scale, it is the name of the game. Uh, you've planned for two years and things to grow at this little half a percent or four or five percent here or there. And now you're you're at a thousand, two thousand percent growth in something and in a scale you 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 as a uh, person running the election office just can't comprehend. You've never seen it. And uh, they're all trying to make decisions like that in Quadient. We step in and we, we really play a role because we understand what they're trying to accomplish from a business level. And uh, we also understand scale. So we've listened to them. We, we uh, want to get them to the next level of automation that makes sense for them. We don't, we don't 
rush out and say, here's our, our real giant solution that'll help you mm -hmm. conduct it. Because uh, we really can't help all the boards of election from the smallest, where they only have four or 5,000 absentee ballots going out by mail, all the way up to your largest, where they've got in the millions going out through the mail. I think that's a great personification of the way that private sector is really trying to align themselves in most cases with public sector and it, trying to be a true partner and not um, not just going after a certain sale um, in terms of uh, in terms of their digital transformation or in this in this case, trying to scale out a challenge, but really, truly partnering them. So I think that's fantastic. Um, I want to shift gears real quick, though, and we have uh, a number of listeners uh, that uh, do sales and marketing towards government entities. And I think they'll be interested in, in understanding this because uh, I know there's um, some trends happening from a customer touchpoint perspective. And Quadient deals in the digital uh, experience, but also, as you mentioned, uh, the regular old-fashioned paper mail uh, scenario. But there seems like there's nothing really old-fashioned about how you guys are helping to facilitate this contactless uh, process. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now in that regard, because I think there's some marketers out there that want to be able to use uh, the U.S. Postal Service and mail and, uh, um, and things like that to reach their customers and don't necessarily want to do it in the way that's been done previously before COVID. So how are you guys um, really changing the game in that regard? That's, that's a, a big question you just asked there for certain. I'll, I'll try and chop it up into some little parts for us. So we've done some really cool stuff, and we've tried to be very innovative. Uh, uh, as as you know, our the children of the country have really been impacted. I've got three young ones myself and uh, uh, a wife who's been turned into a part-time teacher, principal mom. And uh, they're at home, and, and we happen to live in a school district here that was very forward-thinking on the work uh, school work from home uh, years ago. So we got in, have a nice platform. That just doesn't exist in every school district across the country. A lot of them were caught flat-footed or uh, underfunded and they've had to, they've raced and it's been amazing to watch the school districts. They've raced to put technology in the hands of the students, whether it's iPads or Chromebooks, whatever they can. Some of them send out 15,000 digital devices, but at the same time, you get the device home, you got to have internet connectivity. So the schools have been very creative there. They've put school buses out and they've parked them in neighborhoods and turned them into mobile Wi-Fi hotspots so that folks could connect to do their work. But that didn't apply to all school districts. And uh, our, our my, my team up in Maryland uncovered that the rural counties, uh, the rural school districts were really struggling to hit Wi-Fi to all the spots that needed it. And uh, so we've developed with them uh, a solution that sweeps those digital folders, whether it's uh, the Google Classroom or it's learning or whatever the application is, of the work for the students who aren't able to get online consistent, consistently to do it. We sweep the folders, we grab the work, we convert them to PDFs, and we print them at our, our facility and mail them to those students as a pack. So here's your pack for the week or here's your pack for the day. And it comes with this work from all three, four, five, six of your teachers whatever's in that folder gets picked up and mailed out to them. And it doesn't force the school district to put their employees in danger. My sister happens to be a teacher in Durham, North Carolina, and she's telling me stories weeks in about the school, just saying, look, what, what you sent home with them is what they got. And she said, we'll be out of work for these students in three weeks. She's paying out of her pocket to go find 
uh, workbooks for them and then mail them to them. And we know our teachers aren't aren't uh, the highest earners of our population, and that's not the right way to be forcing the teachers out to afford this entire expense. So by doing this, they can get the material out. We come through, sweep it, get it to paper, and and mail it to them. And uh, it's really turned out to be a very good combination of of our technology and our service that we offer uh, in partnership with the school districts. And that's going, uh, it's now going just from grabbing work for students in rural school districts to where we're helping design solutions around uh, the exceptional children programs, IEPs and uh, conferences and communication that really has to take place between all the teachers and, and administrators who are involved with the student and their educational plan. Uh, so it's really become pretty neat to work uh, for for the solutions end of Quadiant. I'm absolutely in love with the the, the atmosphere that's occurring during COVID because it's we've got challenges. We're all able to sit down, talk about them, discuss them, and really start to develop the right solution for folks and and deploy them quickly. Yeah, I think I, I would agree too. I think the pandemic has been kind of a galvanizing uh, force for a lot of organizations to come together and really try to help. Uh, their customers figure out what their challenges are and really help them help them solve them. Um, have you seen that there has been a, a dip in, uh, if you want to call it snail mail, uh, or is this something that's that stayed flat throughout or or even gone up? What have you seen in that regard? So there was about a, a ten or twelve year trend with uh, your first class mail, which is what most people refer to as the snail mail. Um, in the U.S. where we went from doing about 130 billion pieces down to just under 100, 100 billion. And uh, none of us uh, forecasted or projected it. We're all a little amazed. But over the last two or three years, there's been a slight increase in first class mail, probably a little bit driven by how well the economy's done and, and uh, the number of businesses have been created uh, that, that have kept it going. But there's just a lot of security and sending a piece of mail versus communicating digitally. And we still have a lot of businesses that need that level of security. They got to make sure communication is happening. And so they elect to communicate through mail. Uh, you'd asked a little while ago about opportunities for marketing and what marketers do through mail. And the post office has been very creative in developing new services like informed visibility and informed delivery that allow them to, through informed visibility, you can actually see where first class mail is at He's that in, in its delivery chain. So you know when it's out for delivery. And if you're a marketer, the whole point of touch points and uh, creating that customer experience is knowing when to make the next event happen, when the trigger point is. So unlike before, you'd send a piece of mail across the country, you hope it lands in two to four days. Now you know the day it's out for delivery. You can schedule your email follow-up or your phone follow-up or the next touch point. And then there's a service called Informed Delivery, which all of us as citizens can take advantage of where, where we can actually sign up with the post office and every day through an app, we get an image of the mail that's coming to our mailbox that day. And when, I think the last I heard about 16% of Americans had signed up for that service, which is phenomenal and still growing. And uh, marketers can actually see who's on the list as the mail piece is going out and they can have it make make it so that before the mail shows up, I can click on the mail piece and maybe drive drive to a portal or to a to an app, application or to a landing page that's driving interaction with the person a day or two before the mail piece even gets there. So the, the post office has really come out with some nice 
uh, products that not everyone's aware of, but can certainly be leveraged in a number of different ways. No, that's great. And Jeremy, I know in your role, you uh, reach out to government and work and do business with the government. And you probably understand this more than uh, more than a lot of people that um, reaching government entities digitally can be difficult with the uh, the type of firewalls they have now for security purposes. The very reason why uh, why you said that mail has gone up a little bit. So it doesn't really surprise me. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I want to touch on this, because I know that it's still a strong medium for uh, for government marketers uh, to be able to leverage. So um, I, I'm glad to see that's still the case. Um, one thing that's interesting to me, though, is we're all in this telework posture, right? And all this mail is going to offices. But if I'm a marketer and I'm trying to reach some of these people um, with my message and, and I'm deploying this mail campaign, if they're at home, how are they getting their mail? That's a, that's a huge challenge, not just for the marketers getting into the companies, but it's also a really big challenge for a lot of our companies. It, if you don't have anyone at the office, but the mail's still going there, what do you do? And we've worked with the, some of our partner companies where companies can have their mail redirected and they'll pick it up and convert the mail that is intended to go physically to a digital communication and forward it along to the recipient. So most companies have found a way to continue to get that mail to the recipient as desired or intended. So marketers should still rely on the mail because they've the problem is being solved internally to forward it on. And that the, the ability to forward mail digitally is something that we've done for customers for years. Uh, if you send a piece of mail to an elected official, uh, the Department of Defense will take it and they they create it and make it digital. They don't forward the physical piece along and unless that politician elects to have the physical piece forward along because they're creating a layer of security for the public official. And the same thing can be done in the private sector where an image can be taken of the inbound mail piece and forwarded to someone. Do you want to see this mail piece? Would you like us just to forward it to you? Open it, scan it, get you the contents inside digitally. So uh, again, more creative solutions have come out of uh, COVID or, and some of them have just been Solutions that existed for years are now being driven into the marketplace. A lot of great innovation happening right now. And I think COVID has created that necessity. So I appreciate you bringing some of these topics to the forefront. Um, but before we close out, I wanted to give you uh, a chance to uh, give our listeners any final thoughts you might have. So I, I get a call from my parents and I spend eight to 10 hours a day on the phone with different election offices all over the country. And, I get a call from them a couple nights ago and they're saying, Jeremy, all of our friends are on the bandwagon of vote by mail is not a secure way to mail. What, how do we argue with them? And here's my parents they are trying to defend me. And, you know, I appreciate it and I love them for it. But at the same time, I don't need them to defend what I'm doing. But I, I spent some time talking to them and just real simply, like there's a, there's a lot of miseducation going around. So uh, from mail perspective in, in the history of mail, there's never been a cyber attack on a single piece of mail. Uh, which is where most of the uh, troubles in the last election occurred. Uh, there is uh, a, a news article that was done where it says 28 million ballots are unaccounted for dating back to 2010. Well, of course so. If uh, I request a ballot by mail and I lose it, I can call in and request another ballot by mail. I can do that as many times as needed throughout the election, end up with a stack of them here, or maybe I move in the middle of election. It doesn't change the fact that I could mail them all back in 
signed and voted, only one of them is going to count. There's a process internally in each of these boards of election that ensures that that happens. It's a, it would be a very monumental task to fraud vote by mail. I just don't believe it can be done. It's an extremely, extremely secure uh, way to vote. And uh, I want to make sure people know that. Uh, make sure your vote counts, because whether it's by mail or at a polling place, you get one vote. And if you take advantage of it, you'll get that one vote to count. All right. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at B. Stay safe, guys. Bye for now. Government Marketing University's Gain 2020 Conference is where you need to be on Wednesday, November 4th as we spend the day learning and networking. Our agenda is forward-thinking, relevant, and highly interactive. We'll also announce our Gain Awards to highlight the creative work of government marketers. This event is cutting edge. Focusing on the hot topics that all government marketers are dealing with, you will leave with relevant knowledge to enhance and accelerate your government marketing planning. Plus, all attendees will receive training certifications. Register today at gmarku.com. See you there.